Chapter One Hundred and Twenty Eight of Varney the Vampire, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barony. Varney the Vampire, Volume Two, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter One Hundred and Twenty Eight. The New Lodger. A Night Alarm. A Mysterious Circumstance. It was not until late the next day that Mrs. Meredith heard anything of her new lodger. All she had heard was that he would be there during the day, but whether to breakfast, dinner, or tea she could not tell which, and now she was waiting with expectation, if not anxiety. But at the same time she knew she was quite sure of her lodger, because she held his banknote. It had been a dull day. There are many such in London, and therefore that was no singular circumstance. It was one of those dull, leaden-coloured days, of which you can predict nothing with certainty, or even a chance of being right. It was rather squally at times, and at others a west wind blew, not cold, at least not particularly so, but yet notwithstanding the heavy appearance of the sky, there was a clear white light that made every object look more disagreeable than ordinary. The landlady and her daughter were both on the qui vive, as it was called looking out for their new lodger, whom they expected the more immediately as the evening drew on, for there was less likelihood of his coming in the middle of the day than towards the evening, and less after evening had set in than before, for he was an invalid. It was, they thought, just about the time when he must arrive, when there could only be the uncertainty of a few minutes. The whole house was in order. Nothing was left to chance. Mrs. Meredith herself had gone over the whole place, and took especial pains to find all sorts of fault with the unfortunate drudge who did the work, of course aided by the mother and daughter. But such aid was distressing, because she had to wait upon both and do her own work as well. However, all was in readiness, and they were looking out at every coach from between the blinds. The sound of wheels was enough to cause them to start, when suddenly a coach drove up to the door, upon which had been carefully packed several leather boxes and portmanteaus. "'Here he is,' said the daughter. "'Here he is.' "'Yes, and as I am alive,' said Mrs. Meredith, as she cast her eye upwards towards the next house, "'as I am alive, there is that girl again. I do believe that she does it on purpose. It is done to aggravate me, and to attract attention from the men. The hussy!' There was now no time to lose the knocker at the door giving pretty clear indication that instant attention upon their part was requisite, and up jumped Mrs. Meredith and her daughter Margaret. Immediately the servant opened the door into the passage, the coach-door was opened, the steps let clattering down, and Colonel Deverell entered the house. "'Will you walk into the parlour, Colonel?' inquired Mrs. Meredith. "'Until your boxes are all let in, and you see they are all correct, there is a good fire.' "'Thank you, madam,' said the colonel, with some difficulty walking along. "'I am scarcely so well able to walk as I was yesterday.' "'Ah, colonel, you must have suffered much. But I am glad the parlour is so handy. It will save you the walk upstairs at present, until you are quite recovered from your fatigue. Pray be seated, colonel, by the fire. The man shall bring them in and lay them before the door.' "'Thank you,' said the colonel and he sat down in a large easy-chair, having first dropped his cloak, which was a large blue military cloak, lined with white, 
with a fur collar, and looked extremely rich and handsome, beneath which he wore an officer's undress frock, covered over with a profusion of braid. The boxes and portmanteaus were brought in, and laid down so the colonel could see them, and when that was done, the coachman made his demand, which excited an exclamation of horror from Mrs. Meredith, and a declaration that she thought hackney coachmen were the greatest impostors and extortioners under the sun. There never was such a set as hackney coachmen, never. "'Saving lodging-housekeepers, mum, axing your pardon for saying so. Not that I means any offence, only I lived in one once, and ought to know summit.' The colonel, however, made no remark, but pulling out an embroidered purse which appeared to be full of gold, he paid the man his demand. "'Thank you, Your Honour. You are one of the right sort, and no mistake.' So saying, the coachman walked away, jinking the money as he walked along the passage, until he came to the door where the girl was standing, and then, giving her a knowing wink and jerking his head backwards, he said, "'They are a scaly lot here, ain't they, Mary?' "'Mary!' screamed Margaret. "'Yes, miss.' "'Shut the door and come away from that insolent fellow!' Slam went the door and then the servant went downstairs, and the parlour-door was immediately closed, and the colonel was given into the tender mercies of the lodging-housekeeper. For though she pretended that she merely offered a genteel and presentable house for such as desired it, and could afford to pay for it, she was, in every sense of the word, a lodging-housekeeper. The colonel, however, sat very composedly in his chair, and gazed at the fire in silence, and from time to time he gazed at the mother and daughter with his one eye, he had not lost the entire use of the other, but had a green silk shade over it. He watched what went on, and replied cautiously to what was said to him, but appeared inclined to silence, and occasionally abrupt in his conversation. But this they attributed to the habit he must have been in when abroad of commanding. "'Will you take tea at once, Colonel, or at what hour do you choose to have it?' "'I will take it at once. I am tired.' "'What will you take, sir?' inquired Margaret, at one end of the table, and placing herself in an enticing posture, she awaited the answer, expecting to be looked at. "'Coffee,' said the Colonel abruptly. There was a pause. But Margaret said nothing more, and set about doing such little matters as appeared to be an employment. But it was a mere deception. It was all done. Nothing had been left undone. They had taken care of that, as the servant knew full well. However, there was little that passed of any peculiar character on that occasion, for the evening passed off very calmly and comfortable, the colonel giving his opinion somewhat dogmatically, but that, of course, was submitted to, as he was a military man and had much experience, and moreover he was a rich man, quite a nabob. It is astonishing, as a general rule, what people will submit to when it comes from those who have riches at command. That fact alone seems to stamp all that is foolish and absurd coming from such a quarter with sense and worth. It is in vain for any one not blessed with property to talk. His talking is nothing in comparison with what falls from the lips of the man who has property. You are talked down, and if you are obstinate and won't be talked down, why you are a disagreeable fellow, a dissatisfied man, and your neighbours ought to set their faces against you. Thus through life. He who does not submit to the wealthy is always run down, and there is every disposition, if possible, of running him off the road altogether, no matter how great the injustice against him, and the enormity of the conduct of others. 
they are, as they think, justified, because he is not a genteel person. In fact, he is not evangelical. The evening passed over, as we have said, in calmness and quiet, and Mrs. Meredith appeared to be well pleased with her lodger, and at a moderately early hour they separated and went to bed. The colonel retired after taking leave of them to his own room, complaining he was in great pain and scarce able to walk, and so cold he was nearly benumbed. "'This climate,' he said, "'is so cold, so moist, and altogether so uncomfortable, that I cannot understand how it is people ever endure it. Indeed,' he continued to Mrs. Meredith, "'there must be some great difference between rich and poor in their confirmation, else they couldn't stand it.' Of course, Mrs. Meredith assented to the proposition, as she would have done to any other, no matter what proposition, that had been so urged by such a person. Thus it was with the Colonel, who appeared very well satisfied with his lodgings, and all parties for so short a time were well pleased with each other. The night was dark. That is to say, it was one of those nights in which neither moon nor stars showed themselves. No sound was heard through the streets, save the heavy step of the guardian of the night, or the midnight reveller, who might be finding his way homeward, boisterously, and with scarce enough sense to enable him to take the right path. There were clouds enough to have intercepted the moon, but there was a kind of light that was spread through them that you saw when you looked up, but which aided not the traveller below. But then there were countless lamps that illumined the streets. At that time there was a man creeping over the housetops. He had gained the housetop of Mr. Smith, the house in which resided Miss Smith, who had given so much offence to Mrs. Meredith by sitting so much out in the balcony. He stooped in the gutter, and looked cautiously around. No human being was within sight. He was alone, and no soul saw him. Cautiously. He crept towards the trap-door. It was bolted, but that was soon obviated. No sound, however, could be heard. The soft but rotten wood gave way under the steady pressure exerted upon the door, which at length opened. He paused a moment or two, and listened carefully for several minutes. Then he entered the loft, slowly and noiselessly keeping as low as possible, so that he might run no risk of being observed by any one who might be passing the house, or who might be up by accident in any of the opposite houses, in consequence of illness or any other cause. There was a lower trap-door through which the figure passed. There could be no difficulty in passing, because that was always kept open, as it was considered to assist in ventilating the house and then the intruder stood within the house. He then drew himself up to his full height, and paused for some moments, as if considering the next step he would take. But then he descended to the second floor, on which were placed what are called the best bedrooms. He paused at one, gently tried the handle, and finding it turn and the door open, he gave one look towards the stairs that he had just descended, and then he entered the apartment. All was yet still. No sound met his ear, 
save the breathing of the sleeper within, who lay in a sweet sleep, and was as calm and unconscious as the blessed. Perfect rest and forgetfulness had steeped the senses of the young girl, who lay in ambrosial sleep. One arm was thrown outside the clothes, and revealed in all its symmetry a snow-white bosom, heaving gently to the throbbing of the heart. The intruder gazed at the young girl for some moments, and clasped his hands with trembling eagerness, and a ghastly smile played upon his terrible features, while a fearful fire shot from the eyes of one who thus disturbed the slumbers of the living. He approached the bed, and took the hand within his own, and then the sleeper awoke. It would be impossible to describe the look of terror and horror that sat on the young girl's face. She could not scream. She could not utter a sound. Her whole faculties appeared to have been bound up for a short time. She could not even shrink from the horrible being who approached her. She was so perfectly horror-stricken with that truly horrible countenance, the glance of which seemed as if it would destroy the power of speech for ever. She shrank now, but could not move. The creature crept closer. It seized her hand, and held it within its own. But even that could not awake her from the trance she was in. She felt a horrible sinking feeling, as though she must sink through the very flooring of the house, and yet she could not stir. It appeared as though, so long as the hideous face was opposed to hers, so long she was unable to move. It was a species of fascination, however great the horror felt. Yet there was no help for it. She could not ever shut her eyes. That boon was denied her. What she saw cannot be described. It is by far too horrible for pen to describe. The wild, horrible insanity that appeared in the eyes of the creature, with their peculiar cast, was indescribable. The only light that entered the room, at that moment, came from a lamp below, and illumined only the upper part of the room above the window-sills. The creature then stood in relief against this light, a horrible, dark object, whose glaring eyeballs were too terrible ever to be forgotten. Then again, while he with one hand held hers, he passed his other hand up her arm, and then felt along the soft white flesh with its cold, clammy fingers, as if it were feeling for something, or greedy of the velvet-like substance. Still keeping the eyes fixed upon the hapless and helpless girl, he drew the arm towards him, and leaning upon the bed, suddenly plunged his face on the arm, and held and seized it near the middle with his teeth, and then it made an attempt to suck the wound. This, however, broke the charm, horrible and complete as it was, for the creature's hideous countenance was lost to her sight as he plunged his face to her arm. Shriek followed shriek in quick and rapid succession. The whole house was alarmed by the terrible shrieks that came from the apartment. She struggled, and by a sudden effort she disengaged herself from the grasp of the fiend, and rolled, wrapped up in the bedclothes, to the other side of the floor. The monster still pursued her with greedy thirst for blood, and had picked her up, and again placed her on the bed with more than mere human strength. 
and again sought the arm he had been deprived of by the sudden effort of the young girl. "'Help! Help! Mother! Father! Help! Help!' The shouts rang through the house, awaking the affrighted sleepers from the repose in a manner that may be called distressing. It is distressing in the midst of a large city to be awoke, in the dead of the night, by loud and urgent cries of distress. It is such a contrast to the dead stillness that reigns around, and when the first cries are heard, it creates a terror and surprise that takes away all power of action. It was not till the cries had been heard a second time that the inmates aroused themselves. The fact was, they were fearful of fire. The moment that idea floated across their minds, then indeed they started up, and the father of the young girl, hearing the fall, at once rushed to the room of his daughter. He arrived but in time. The hideous monster, being affrighted by the footsteps approaching him, turned from his blood-stained feast, and hid himself beneath the drapery as the father entered the room. "'Mary,' he said, "'Mary, Mary, what means this? What can be the matter? Are you hurt? How come you in this disorder?' Oh, God! That thing from the grave has been sucking my blood from my veins. See, see yonder, he moves. Watch him, note him, father. Believing she raved, her father paid no attention to what she did say, but continued to regard her with sorrow and regret, for he believed it to be a sudden attack of mania. But seeing the curtains move, he turned his head, and at once divined it to be the cause of his daughter's alarm. The glance was but momentary, but he saw the figure of a man who was escaping from the apartment by the door by which he had at that moment entered. "'Help!' he shouted. "'Help! Thieves! Murder!' And as he shouted, he rushed after the figure that was flying towards the top of the house. By this time the house was filled up with people, and the noise upstairs had caused the servants below to rise confused and thoroughly terrified by the sounds they heard, and the cries of their master. At that moment one of those watchful guardians of the night passed by the house, and was immediately hailed by the unfortunate people below, who were afraid to go upstairs to offer any assistance, lest they might be knocked back again, which fear stopped all aid from below. Hello. "'What's the matter now?' inquired the worthy guardian of the night. "'Oh, I don't know. Goodness knows. You had better go up and see. I'll come up after you. Don't be afraid. I'll come up after you if you'll go first. "'Stop a moment while I spring my rattle,' said the worthy functionary, who thereupon gave an alarming peal upon his instrument, and then he entered the house, with instructions to the servant to run downstairs and let any of his party in that might come up. Then the guardian of the night hastened upstairs with all the haste he could, and came up just in time to pick Mr. Smith up, who was lying stunned at the foot of the stairs. The fact was, Mr. Smith had pursued his adversary too quickly, and finding he could not get off, he turned round and felled him to the earth like an ox. It was just at this juncture when the Charlie came upstairs, and in another moment Mr. Smith recovered. "'What's the matter?' inquired the watchman. Is the house on fire? No, no, the vampire, the vampire. Eh, what? Never heard of him before, never seed him. Quick, quick, he has gone upstairs. Quick, after him, said Mr. Smith, as he ran up the stairs, and was quickly followed by the watchman and some others who now crowded about, having had time to dress themselves and come to Mr. Smith's aid, and they now crowded to the housetop, 
for they saw the trap-door was unfastened, though it had been hastily pushed to. This they opened, and then looked on the housetop, first one way, and then another. "'He ain't here,' said the watchman, "'and we mustn't expect to find him here. He wouldn't wait for us, you may depend upon that. We had better search along the housetops till we see him, or find some of the other traps open, and then you may guess where he has gone.' "'The difficulty is which way did he go?' said Mr. Smith. "'Oh, I saw him go that way,' said another watchman, who came upstairs, having been first attracted by the sounds of the rattle, and then, looking up at the house, he saw the figure of a man stealing with great rapidity of motion across the housetops. "'There I lost him, then,' he said. "'I didn't see him after that spot, but he may have gone further for all I can say to the contrary, but we shall soon see.' "'This trap-door is open,' said the other watchman as he pulled aside Mrs. Meredith's trap-door, which had only been pushed to. "'We had better go in here, and see if he isn't gone somewhere into the house, and hiding himself till all is quiet, and then he will make off if left alone.'" End of chapter 128 Recording by Barony